you again see that supernatural blueprint for my life. I couldn't have designed it that way, but I could respond to promptings and callings and experience that in an amazing way. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So Andrew, you do quite a bit of traveling, and I know that your travels take you to many conferences, to workshops, to seminars. During this time of year, do you find yourself going to many high school or college graduations? Well, sometimes. These would usually be, of course, homeschool graduations. And in the past, I have done little commencement address kind of thing at homeschool graduations. I don't do many schools. Mm-hmm. Although I think I would be happy to go do the thing at Notre Dame or <laughs> UCLA, and they'd have to pay, though. <laughs> yes. Well, when I think about this time of year, I think of grads, whether it be high school or college. I think grads. of grass because you have to start mowing. It's true. <laughs> like crazy all the time. But grads, graduates. Graduates, yes. And I know that in your interactions, whether it be with the teens that are around the office or whether it be at your high school essay intensives, you have lots of advice that you dispense to these teens and generally very willing to listen. I know this advice came through the University of Hard Knocks, that you yourself have told stories from your high school and early adult years. And I, I just thought it would be fun for our listeners to have you go back into the archives of your mind and share some of the stories that you remember that helped you become the man you are today? I went to public high school Mm -hmm. in a fairly well-off suburb of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes joke that the one lesson I learned really well in high school was how to survive boredom, (laughs) which I think a lot of high school students probably get a good dose of how to survive boredom. And it is a very good skill because you don't want to go into adulthood and actually die of boredom, which is what you believe could happen when you're young. Of course, we learn certain things that have lifelong value. In my case, I think typing was a class in high school that made a big difference, and selling yearbook ads, because that felt real. That felt like, wow, I'm doing something important. I'm going out and convincing people to give money to my high school so we can have a yearbook. So Mm -hmm. that had a reality to it. But a lot of it was just really fuzzy. I mean, you could name a lot of classes, and I wouldn't have any pictures, you know, no memories, no teachers, no classrooms, very little. For me, real life started, and the memories happened when school was out. Mm -hmm. And that's when I would have a real job. That's when I would play war games with friends. That's when I would travel around on my bicycle and then later in my car. So I think there's kind of an interesting problem of students, teenage students, and that is, you know, at the high school level, it's compulsory, but 
compulsory education is kind of an oxymoron. I mean, how do you make somebody learn something? You can put them in a situation where if you don't study, you get a bad grade on the test. If you don't get good grades, you can't go to college. Your whole life will be miserable. And so that kind of mentality promotes what I would say looks like, you know, in my case, certainly, and I think other people have experienced this, kind of an artificial type of learning. Whereas the things I remember to this day, four decades later, are the things that I was interested in, that I pursued because I had a, a drive or a passion or a curiosity, or I was inspired by someone. So there's a balance there. How do you operate within the system and gain the greatest benefits you can while still pursuing, to the degree you are free or able to, your interests, your passions? Right. A balance between conservative, cautious being in the world and the kind of edgy, push-the-limits type of adventuring that is so an intrinsic drive in all people, but in teenagers most of all. And I think if you, if you go to an extreme, then you run some dangers. So you learned to type in high school, and you sold things to your friends in high school. Right? Well, yes, I, I did start my first business at 16. Oh, okay. I realized that you could buy wholesale and sell retail. And our whole thing, my friends and our, our network was into war games and miniatures and all of the pre-computer ways that mm -hmm. teenage boys could amuse themselves with games. And so I just thought, well, why not? Buy wholesale, cost you about half as much, sell it to your friends, make money, and you get stuff for free. So, yeah, Phalanx Enterprises. I even had a little <laughs> business card, and I had a trunk full of gaming supplies. And then I got a job working for a war game store, so that made it even easier to get contacts. I used to go to conventions. And, you know, you get so much practical experience from being involved in a little enterprise like that. You, you have to apply skills and knowledge that you've acquired in school that don't seem to have any bearing in your life, and now suddenly it does. Right. So that's one reason, you know, I'm, I'm always kind of pushing the idea of, hey, start a business, start a family business. If you're a teenager, figure out what can you do if you're a teacher or a coach or a parent or start a little entrepreneurship club. Kids often don't do as much schoolwork or study during the summer. It's a great time mm -hmm. to look and say, okay, what service could I offer? What could I buy and sell? What kind of thing maybe I could do with websites today? Of course, it's a lot easier to have a professional presence in the world. So I think that practical application is very useful, although it's a little off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. It is a little unusual to find a teenager who has their own business, per se. And I don't know how many hundreds or thousand dollars that I make. It certainly wasn't much, but it was some gas money, some Taco Bell food, some free <laughs> war games, and some really good experience. And that kind of oriented me, I think, for the rest of my life toward entrepreneurial thinking. Right, absolutely. And I know that you know, we we here at IEW, in addition to teaching writing, we do have some curricular materials for parents and teachers who want to explore entrepreneurial clubs and classes for their kids, which is something I know that you've been passionate about your whole life. 
Yeah, the uh, Micro Business for Teens mm-hmm. by Carol Top, and then the Lemonade to Leadership. Mm-hmm. And w- I think we did a podcast on that, and we've got some some wonderful little stories of mm-hmm. success in that that area. Yes. But one of the other things that I think we all have to come to grips with sooner or later, if we're going to be successful, is who's in charge of my education? Right. You grow up, and growing up and being a kid is pretty much about getting bossed around. People and adults and teachers and everybody in your world basically says, go here, do this, don't go there, don't do that, read this, don't read that, say this, don't say that. And kids hit a certain age, and they get kind of tired of that. Mm -hmm. And they know they're getting tired of it, but they don't know how to make the transition so easily. So how does a teen get their parents to stop telling them what to do? Well, it's pretty easy. I always say if you don't want other people to boss you around, boss yourself around. Mm -hmm. The only reason people tell kids what to do is because the kids look like they don't know. Right, right? Exactly. They look like they don't use their time well. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's got to be one of the most determining factors between childhood and adulthood. Uh, it's not age. It's not even so much how much knowledge or skill you've acquired. It's more that level of initiative and self-direction. If you want other people to stop bossing you around, boss yourself around, what does that mean? Use your time well. Mm-hmm. So if you choose what books to read, and they're good books, people won't tell you what that you should do instead of it. If you're engaged in study or uh, starting a business or involved in community service or some type of, of work that's con- meaningful in terms of personal growth as well as being active and learning and helping the world, well, that's what adulthood is all about, right? right? Exactly. Of course, some people never grow up. I mean, there <laughs> are, I'm sure, a good number of 30-year-old, 12-year-olds out there who mm-hmm. are amusing themselves as a primary activity. But then I see 12-year-olds that operate a lot more like 30-year-olds should be in terms of, hey, I'm doing this and this and this, and I'm learning this and this, and I have these goals, and this is what I'm hoping. But that's not something that comes either easily or naturally to everyone. It, it is something that has to be probably learned through imitation mm-hmm. to some degree, consciously worked on, practiced, and then become a habit. Mm-hmm. So your small business that you had, that grew into other adventures. Well, yes, I did go to college because mm-hmm. that was what you were supposed to do. Yep. Right. I mean, the dominant paradigm is if you don't go to college, well, then the best you're ever going to do is gas station attendant or busboy at Denny's, and you'll live a life of poverty and misery if you don't go to college. Yes, and I think that was very much our generation. Same same here. I went to college right out of high school. I think today's high school graduates aren't necessarily seeing as that being their only option. Well, and there's probably more people talking about the options. And we have some rather famous people who didn't finish college Mm -hmm. as well that have been extremely successful. Mm -hmm. And you can find college dropouts all the way back in history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I wouldn't want this to come across to anyone that I recommend everyone drop out from college. Although one of the founders of PayPal a few years ago 
offered $100,000 to anyone who wanted to drop out of college and start a business. Nice. <laughs> You're not quite ready to do that. No, no, we're not We're not offering that. But yeah, I think the idea is let's look at the standard conveyor belt paradigm, mm-hmm. which right now can easily involve for students a tremendous amount of debt. Mm-hmm. So you get out of high school, you go to college, you pretty much have to borrow money unless really you have very wealthy parents or or are extremely smart and get full-ride scholarships, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. your average kid is going to borrow twenty, thirty, fifty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, depending on what college. And then is that really going to prepare them to make that much more money to pay it all back? That's a question a lot of people are asking, not just me. Mm-hmm. I didn't drop out for financial reasons. I dropped out because I, I felt called mm-hmm. to do different things. Mm-hmm. So I left after about a year and a quarter, and went to work for a nonprofit organization. I was very altruistically motivated. Mm-hmm. And it was an organization that actually taught me a lot of really important skills. One of my jobs while I was there was working in the office of the lecture tour coordinator. Ha, huh. lecture tour coordinator. So what did I learn? <laughs> Logistics, mm-hmm. book selling, public speaking, communication. And of course, we did all of that without computers. And this particular boss was really very much a mentor. Mm. She was not just telling me what to do. She was helping me learn how to do those things, very much the way you work with the young <laughs> folks around here. You're so good at that. I love it. But, you know, that was a great experience. But I wasn't really on a career track. Mm-hmm. And after a few years, I realized, okay, I'm 20-some years old. I really have no degree. I have no concrete skills. I have no job and I have no money. So maybe I better do something different. So it worked out that I was able to go to Japan. Right. And my father, who had not had to pay much for me dropping out of college, was able to help me get over to Japan. And there I learned, of course, how to be a violin teacher from Dr. Suzuki. I learned a whole lot more, kind of the intangibles from Dr. Suzuki. I taught English to make money which was actually quite lucrative at that time. I was able to support myself very comfortably on working 15, 20 hours a week teaching English and how to live in a foreign country and foreign cultures and Japanese language. And I mean, that's a phenomenal experience. In fact, I wish all young people could have the opportunity to live in a foreign country for Mm -hmm. months or a year or more because it does so much to help you get a better perspective on on the world you live in, the whole world, not just the little Amerocentric attitudes that we tend to have living in our fairly insulated little world. So that just blew my thinking wide open Mm -hmm. living in a foreign country and and such a different culture as Japan as well. Sure. And martial arts, I studied that. I even studied flower arranging. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. So I could learn the wabi and sabi of ikebana. (laughs) So then I had this path uh, of going from Japan to another nonprofit organization, and that was the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential, Hmm. where I went and I learned quite a bit about child brain development. Again, it was very much a mentorship type of environment. I was working for, I think, $50 a week was Hmm. my stipend. They provided room and board, but it wasn't a job so much as it was a vocation. And I felt very called to that. And we worked very long hours. And I learned a lot with working, living 
and doing the same programs every day with brain-injured young adults for six months, like a, a boot camp. Mm-hmm. And then I moved into different training and learning about programs of social intelligence, physical excellence, programs of intellectual intelligence. And I got a chance to teach violin in the school that was affiliated with that program. And so my three years there, I look at as being very, very formative Mm -hmm. in terms of the foundation that has allowed me to continue learning and knowing and sharing and helping parents with kids who struggle with one or more issues. So, I mean, that's a kind of education I never could have had if I'd stayed in school, even if I went and finished a degree and went into a master's in something, that would have been a more academic, more traditional type of training, whereas what I got was a very practical, hands-on, in the trenches every day with people who'd been doing that for 20 years type of training. And certainly something memorable, something much more memorable than, say, studying Much more memorable. I can't actually remember any except two of Mm -hmm. my college classes. Hmm. The rest of it's just completely a fuzz. Mm -hmm. But I remember so much of my life in Philadelphia. I I have to admit, you know, it's a very non-traditional route through life. And it it kind of challenged my father. His view was the way you have a comfortable, successful life is you go to college and learn something really practical like engineering. You become really good. You work for one company for the rest of your life. Then you retire. And that's Mm -hmm. the way you be happy. Mm-hmm. And I think he was a little frustrated with me because you know, I went from one situation that didn't pay anything to another situation that didn't pay anything. And I chose a career that paid very little. And I kept bouncing around. And then mm-hmm. I you know, started these different little businesses in an effort to try to afford to be a music teacher. And mm-hmm. I just always had seemed like I had my my brain and my fingers in all different types of projects. And I think he always would kind of think, if Andrew would just settle down Mm -hmm. and do one thing, that would be good. (laughs) So although he might have had questions, he still supported you, both emotionally and monetarily. Yes. And as you know, he passed on a few weeks Mm -hmm. ago at 89. Mm -hmm. And we had some great conversations, my visits to California Mm -hmm. before that. And he was, I think, an incredible, unconditional supporter of his children, my mm-hmm. sister and me. And for that, I am profoundly grateful. And, you know, sometimes we have to do that, too, if we have wild kids. We just have to be like, okay, go learn your lessons however you have to. Right. And I will I will unconditionally love and, and believe in you. Yep, yep. And that's the way he was. And then, of course, I finally hit the the thing that became my work for the rest of the life, which is IEW. So let me, let me, if I were to summarize your training up to this point, you learned to type in high school. <laughs> yeah, was, it was important. <laughs> you learned a little bit in college. You didn't share about your, the one class that you do remember, the composition class, where you didn't get such a great grade. Yeah, yeah, it was creative writing, <laughs> English 301. I barely, barely squeaked to see minus out of that class. The lesson I learned is if the teacher won't tell you what she or he wants, 
then it's really hard to make that teacher happy. Which resulted in a talk called The Four Deadly it, Errors. It, a lot of those things, yes, have uh, become seeds for right. you know lessons and little vignettes that right. I've been able to build into my teaching these days. Yeah, Right, so your, your little business where you learned to buy wholesale and sell retail, and then you also learned how to coordinate speakers and actually become a speaker, do convention tables, and then you went to Japan and learned a teaching methodology mm-hmm. that we, of course, use here at IEW, both in our poetry, but also in our writing program, right? And then this really important time of your life where you learn child brain development, which is, of course, very informative to what we do here at IEW. It sounds like all the stars were aligning for you to come where we are today. Yeah, I would say there is a providence. There's a hidden hand at work, if you will, that moved me these Mm -hmm. places. I didn't have a plan for my life, really. So I was willing to do crazy things and take risks, but there was, in each decision, strong attraction, if not an intuitive confidence. So it wasn't, you know, should I go to Japan or not? It was, I should go to Japan, how am I going to get there? Mm -hmm. It wasn't, should I work for Glendoman in the institutes in Philadelphia? It was more like, when will I get there? Mm-hmm. Uh, will they take me, and when will I be able to get there? And so all these things really fell into mm-hmm. place. And then, as you said, when I went to Canada in 1990, I was working for this small school in Montana, when I met Dr. Webster and took the 10-day blended structure and style and composition course and went through the nine units and did the practicums and read his book and talked to him I said, wow, that is, number one, a Suzuki method Mm -hmm. for teaching English composition, which I knew from my experience in music is the most effective educational system on the planet, really, to get little kids to do insanely difficult things and make it look easy. So I said, that's a Suzuki method. It lines up completely with principles of child brain development. There's a practicality and an application to it that immediately made me a better writer. And, of course, we hear that all the time, don't you? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we hear parents who say, oh, if I just had this when I was in school. Yep. Or dads who get dragged into the seminar and say, oh, this is going to help me so much in my work, my ministry, whatever. So there's practicality, but it's not a pragmatic practicality. It's a genuine practicality mm-hmm. because it's based on some foundational principles that, of course, we keep talking about again and again in these podcasts. Yes, we do. So, yes, how could all of that have happened? And then I I would add in one more thing, and I mention this sometimes in my talk on teaching boys and other kids who would rather be making forts all day, Mm -hmm. the violin. You know, why is it that I could even go to Japan to be a violin teacher that started this kind of whole string of events in my life? Well, that was some kind of deep intrinsic desire. My mom said that I was begging for a violin from the time I could talk. Mm-hmm. She was a piano and voice teacher. So, you know, why? Right. I have no idea. But I do know for a fact, if I had not grown up playing the violin, even though I quit for a while in high school and college, I didn't play the violin, I picked it up then 
later while I was working for this nonprofit, if I had not grown up playing the violin, there's no way I could have gone to Japan to train to be a violin teacher. Right. And the entire trajectory of my life would have been different. Hmm. There's no way that we could be sitting here today and that this business could exist if I had not grown up playing the violin. And so you, again, see that supernatural blueprint for my life. I couldn't have designed it that way, but I could respond to promptings and callings and experience that in an amazing way. Right. Now, we are running out of time, so I feel like we need to perhaps pause here and pick this up again next week. I would love for you to share next week some of the stories that you tell at the high school essay intensive to those teens as a way to motivate them to pursue the path that they're feeling called to. Well, Julie, you know I can tell stories. I am a professional talker. Yes, you are. (laughs) That's what I do. So we'll pick it up then a little bit later. Okay, sounds great. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.